Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Retrofit takes centre stage in upcoming Architects' protest and the RIBA London Awards shortlist. Critics slam a new development at Tottenham Court Road accused of murdering the neighbourhood. The RIBA names seven practices vying to redevelop its 66 Portland Place headquarters. And a new project sets out to immortalise 1,000 dead architects in a series of limited edition NFTs. My name is Merlin Fulcher, I'm an architectural journalist, and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The London. My guest this week is Catherine Croft. Catherine is director of the 20th Century Society. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Architects are set to protest outside Parliament next week, calling for the government to ramp up the speed and scale of its domestic retrofit programme. The demonstration coincides with a fresh IPCC report issuing its bleakest warning yet on the impacts of climate breakdown and a raft of retrofit projects being shortlisted for the prestigious RIBA London Awards. It's something that's been reported by the AJ. Next Wednesday, architects are planning a protest outside the Houses of Parliament. Uh, The Houses of Parliament itself is a Grade 1 listed building, which is about to undergo a £12 billion refurbishment. The protesters will be calling for the essential retrofit of the 19 million cold and drafty homes in the United Kingdom. Coined the Great Homes Upgrade and spearheaded by the New Economics Foundation, the campaign comes as the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change releases its latest report which says that droughts, floods, heat waves and other extreme weather are accelerating and wreaking increasing damage. Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, said, quote, I have seen many scientific reports in my time, but nothing like this. Today's IPCC report is an atlas of human suffering and a damning indictment of failed climate leadership. Also in the news this week, the AJ reported that 68 buildings made it to the RIBA London Regional Awards shortlist. The shortlist makes up one of the preliminary rounds of selection for the prestigious Sterling Prize. It's awarded annually to a single building embodying excellence in architecture, effectively the best building in Britain award. Um, Several buildings from Alford Hall, Monaghan Morris, as well as Allies of Morris and Shepherd Robson, Buckley Gray Yeoman, Sermon West and Peter Barber Architects, Pruitt Bisley Architects, EPR and May, 
all feature on the shortlist. Um, it's a, a mixture of large star architects as well as smaller practices. And uh, this year's selection of buildings also contains a number of retrofit projects, including AHMM's Post Building on New Oxford Street and Peveril Gardens and Studios by Sanchez Benton Architects in Elephant and Castle. Um, there's also two retrofit of prominent Broadgate buildings in the city of London. Uh, that's 100 Liverpool Street by Hopkins Architects and 135 Bishopsgate by Fletcher Priest Architects. Uh, RIBA London director Diane Small said, quote, uh, the jury discussions were focused on assessing how environmentally and socially conscious the projects were, and in particular, how they have and will positively shape the communities they're in. Uh, all of the shortlisted schemes will be assessed by a jury, uh, and the winning projects will be announced later this spring. So, Catherine, we've seen an awful lot of direct action taking place on the issue of insulation over the past year, uh, first with the Insulate Britain protests, uh, and now with this architects uh, protest outside Parliament uh, um, with participants from the Architects Climate Action Network. Um, why is this an issue we should be paying attention to, um, not least considering um, this could also play an important role in conserving built environment heritage? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess we we are all living and working in some very leaky buildings um, and we really got to face up to the, the impact of, of climate change and, and insulating our buildings better has got to be absolutely key to that. Um, it's it's not easy to do, though, is it? We know that. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm really conscious about the impact on historic buildings. Um, a lot of the buildings that we campaign for at 20th Century Society, you know, were built in the post-war period when everyone thought that electricity was going to be cheap and free and clean and, um, you know, everyone would be able to have it and there'd be no fuel poverty and um, no one had heard of um, climate change. And now we're in a totally, totally different world. And we've, um, you know, we've got buildings with huge glass facades where um, heat is just pouring out of them. Um, and problems with um, solar gain in the summer. So, I mean, you know, we absolutely know that we can't campaign for preservation of buildings unless we can show that they can um, be adapted and uh, really address those those problems, you know, without um, ruining what, what's special about them in, in, in our eyes. So, um, you know, that is often a really difficult challenge to, to upgrade sensitively. Um, you know, I mean, back in um, 2013, 2013 to 15, um, there was the, the Green Deal energy efficiency scheme. And, um, you know, that was supposed to be high, um, to get, you know, good um, insulation and, and for, for, for um, regular households. Um, but in the end, I think only um, 14,000 households, which was 0.05% of the target, took advantage of that Green Deal thing. And I think it's because people just sort of don't really know what they're doing and are really worried about the, the level of disruption to their lives. Um, and, um, and we need to be giving people really specific and practical advice on, on how to go about doing this. And just thinking about these RIBA London uh, awards shortlists, so, um, there's a number of retrofit 
uh, projects there uh, competing for these prestigious awards. Uh, for example, is Muse House and Percent House, which are both by Pruitt Bisley Architects. Uh, there's also two huge office buildings in Broadgate. And that's quite interesting because um, Broadgate, uh, next to Liverpool Street Station, it's a 1980s office campus. And just 10 years ago, it was the focus of like a major kind of conservation battle, like a real showdown uh, over plans to demolish one of the buildings and create a new UBS banking headquarters designed by Make Architects. Uh, it did get built in the end. Um, but now other buildings around there are being uh, retrofitted. Um, do you think the inclusion of these retrofitted buildings, which haven't been demolished and rebuilt, um, show that the RIBA and maybe the architecture industry is um, moving towards valuing that um, environmental and social impact, um, which can be retained by keeping them uh, more highly than it previously did? Yeah, I think that's probably so, although um, I'll come back to look in a bit more detail at some of those buildings and, and how, they, um, how they differ from one another. Um, but just to, to reflect a bit on Broadgate, yeah, I mean, 20th Century Society campaigned really, really hard to get Broadgate listed because I think it was a fantastic example of a postmodern office development with enormous um, ambition and um, beautifully integrated sculpture and a real... Um, a real new bit of city that created fantastic new exterior spaces between the buildings as well as focusing on the design of individual buildings and I think it's a real pity that it's um, wasn't listed and, and it's now pretty much unrecognisable for what it was but yeah looking at these buildings I mean we talk about them all we we use all these words kind of really um, without kind of I think really focusing on what they mean what does retrofit what does renovation what does refurbishment mean and some of these projects are about doing the minimum and accepting um, and enjoying the building for what it already is and some of them are about much much more intervention and rebranding and so yeah so the AHMM building which that was the um, transformation transformation that's their word of the Royal Mail sorting office on behind New Oxford Street and what they say is it the lower half of the existing frame is retained um, frame no not building as a whole and then you know then there's, there's a whole new top half building the top half is replaced and you know huge amounts of new material have gone into that project and the the Hopkins building 100 Liverpool Street again they say in their spiel it's been extensively rebuilt and extended you know it, it, it's about change it's not about restoring a building or or um i don't think we're comparing like for like in terms of their attitude to embodied energy and and their um environmental impact the fletcher priest scheme at 135 bishop's gate they say that they retained 90 percent of the existing structure and envelope of that's a 1980s som building you know, that seems to me to be an incredibly positive claim. And so, I mean, I hope that part of putting these on the shortlist will will encourage people to, you know, to really analyse what it is that has been achieved in all these um, projects. Yeah, I think that that is really interesting, because certainly if I were to think of that post building by HMM, being familiar with what was there before, uh, I couldn't imagine anybody really calling to list it. It, it. Yeah, it didn't have much visual interest, although it had a kind of interesting, like, infrastructural legacy of um, whatever post-war Britain and the Royal Mail and the Underground Railway, Mail Railway. Um, you, it does beg the question of maybe there should be like a, a sort of tiered approach where 
people do try to retain like 90% plus of an existing building where it's possible or where it, where it has some kind of aesthetic merit. Um, and then in other instances, it is acceptable to go a bit further. I'm sure that's true. And I, I mean, I think what we, we don't do at the moment is have really good, easily understandable um, ways of calculating what the embodied energy is in a building um, you know, when it goes in for a planning permission. Um, and to be able to, to to accurately say what percentage of, of, of that is actually still there at the end of it. You know, that's that's what we all want to be able to pin down. And then we would be able to make um, um, meaningful comparisons, I think. Thank you for supporting The Lundown by listening, subscribing and sharing the show. The Lundown is produced by Open City and the London Society. Open City is a charity best known for the Open House Festival, but also for our tours, education programmes and events. Uh, The show, along with the festival and schools programmes, are free because we believe everyone should have access to the tools and resources to learn about and experience our built environment. Uh, To keep this show free for everyone, we rely on those of you who can afford it to donate the equivalent of just one coffee per month. Um, If this is you, please go to open-city.org.uk forward slash flat white to donate and keep these conversations accessible, inclusive and honest. Alternet, a huge new mixed-use development set to open between London's famous Denmark Street and the rebuilt Tottenham Court Road station next year, has been slated by critics, including previous London guest Edwin Heathcote, who published a punchy review of the building in the Financial Times this week. Uh, Much has been written and said about the decline of London's once thriving club and music scene over the past decade. Uh, And perhaps one neighbourhood where its collapse has been most apparent is the eastern end of Oxford Street in Soho, uh, where the development of a new crossrail station has seen many famous clubs, venues and shops forced to close their doors for good over the past decade. Um, Now, as part of a promise to restore the cultural significance of the area, a consolidated group, uh, the owners of a prominent site adjoining Denmark Street, um, Denmark Street itself is famous around the world as Tin Pan Alley, um, hosted a lot of legendary recording studios. And um, with this prominent site, they're set to open uh, an ORMS design building called uh, the Alternet. The building is a gold-fronted mega venue completed uh, with a 2,000-capacity live events venue, apartments, session rooms, restaurants, and the world's largest high-resolution wraparound screen. Um, After writing about the vibrant history of the area, Heathcote said, quote, the neighbourhood has been murdered. Um, And uh, commenting on the alternate itself, he went on to say that, quote, like Leicester Square, this is a development that Londoners will have to learn to avoid. Um, Meanwhile, in outer west London, IKEA's first city centre shopping mall opened its doors in Hammersmith this week. Uh, The opening has been reported in The Guardian and was met with a reasonably positive reception on social media. Uh, The flat pack furniture giant IKEA purchased the former King's Mall two years ago um, when more than a quarter of of the shops in the tired shopping centre stood vacant. This £170 million venture by the Swedish company is the first to open in the UK and is the first globally to be refurbished instead of being built from scratch. Um, The Livat Shopping Centre, one of 47 IKEA malls worldwide, is now fully let and includes tenants such as Lidl, uh, the social enterprise and library of things, um, as well as obviously a tiny IKEA outlet. Um, So Catherine, what do you make of these two stories?
stories. Uh, on the one hand, we have the all-singing, all-dancing alternate venue off Denmark Street, which has been absolutely sway- slated by critics on Twitter and involved a lot of demolition. And on the other hand, we have IKEA's live-out shopping centre in the suburbs of the city, um, which, through retrofit, basically saved a large 20th century structure, which would have maybe otherwise been flattened. Um, what sets these two developments apart from one another? Um, and what do these two projects say about that sort of changing nature of culture in London, where it seems like the city centre appears to be struggling to stay relevant, maybe compared to those outer boroughs. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, this. I mean, you know, Oxford Street's been really struggling to um, get people to to think it's a, a fun and vibrant place to come and do something other than shopping. I mean, the, um, the, um, the mound down the other end was um, a massive flop. Um, I mean, 20th Century Society, we've been doing a project on the future of the department store. So we know an awful lot of those, if they're not closing completely, they're selling off their upper floors for residential or for office. You know, they're really downsizing. And I think we need to think more and more about, you know, what what do people want to do um, in city centres? And I, I think it, it is really important. We want to be... Um, you know, we want to be in the presence of other people. We want to have that public life. Um, but I think at the moment, we're not quite sure how that constitutes itself. So at the end of uh, his article on the Alternet, uh, Edwin Heathcote, he quotes Jonathan Meads, uh, the architecture critic and broadcaster. Uh, he says... Demolishing our past is vandalism in the name of regeneration. It might have been conceived as a revival of the neighbourhood's live music heritage, but it looks like the opposite, a massive billboard for a garish, digitised future in which London is reconceived as an advertising hoarding. Um, I mean, I can imagine a few other areas that being applied to as well. Um, uh, Does Meads have a point here? Um, And if so, why are we still so fixated on... Yeah, demolition. Is it a cultural thing or an industrial thing or what's going on? Um, I think there is this kind of enormous excitement energy, isn't there, in demolition? You know, it's um, and if you're a local politician or, you know, it's delivering decisive change, isn't it? If you knock something down and and put up something new. Um, um, And I'm thinking back to all that fuss around, um, rightly fuss around when the Commonwealth Games was going to be in Glasgow in 2014. And there was a proposal to blow up the remains of the, the Red Road flats as part of the opening ceremony. You know, that the idea that, that blowing up people's homes in, in a nation that hasn't got to grips with providing decent social housing could be a spectacle and an entertainment is kind of horrific. Um, but I think there is there's something kind of sexy about demolition that we can't let go of. So the Hammersmith liver, it's, um, it's not, it's, isn't the only redevelopment IKEA is working on right now. So next year, uh, the former Top Shop store on Oxford Circus, uh, this enormous building, is uh, due to reopen as an IKEA. Um, later this year, it also plans to transform San Francisco's uh, 6x6 Ghost Mall. Um, which has remained empty since its completion back in 2016, uh, as well as Toronto's Aura Podium, uh, which is another rundown retail centre. Um, so IKEA has been the world's largest furniture retailer for decades now, um, and it's uh, played an instrumental role in the kind of affordable homes interiors revolution, uh, which took place at the turn of the millennium. Um, what do you read into this latest uh, retrofit trend that it's going down? I mean, is it setting a good example to other retailers? Uh, and obviously, uh, in particular, for example, on Oxford Street, Marks and Spencer, 
which is trying to actually demolish its historic headquarters on that building uh, rather than restoring it the way that um, IKEA is doing down the road at the top former Topshop store. Yeah, no, we've been definitely calling on Marks and Spencers to you know put their um, um, environmental um, credentials on the line and, and not demolishing their headquarters building is going to have infinitely more impact than um, any number of, of tweaks they could make to their, their products that they sell. Um, the, yeah, so the King's Mall in, in Hammersmith was actually designed by Richard Seifert, so by the, the architect of Centrepoint. And um, I mean, it's, it's, it's been um, fairly heavily made over, but um, it's good to see it being reused. Um, there's an element of housing there as well that's being reused. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the IKEA model, you know, an awful lot of it is about enabling people to uh, furnish their homes cheaply, um, which is great, but but to do it on a um, on a short term basis, the you know the idea that we won't bother to move our stuff when we go um, to a um, a new flat. I mean, they they're they're talking about how they're beginning to address uh, to address that within their 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 strategy. Um, I mean, I'm kind of less interested in in IKEA taking on this sort of project than I am in, to to learn more about what they're doing in terms of making sure that their products kind of have a longer life. So that in terms of um, you know, enabling resale, enabling swapping, um, enabling um, you to buy replacement parts for things that, that go wrong. You know, I think they have got a big commitment to doing that. And that that seems to me to be incredibly um, important, seeing as how they've got such a huge share of the um, furniture market. The RIBA has named the seven teams competing for a £20 million comprehensive refurbishment of its George Gray Warnham-designed central London headquarters. Uh, this has been reported in the AJ. Uh, the finalists include David Conn Architects, Belfast-based Hall McKnight, uh, Ros Barr Architects, and a collaboration between Freehouse, uh, which is jointly headed by AJ40 Under 40 star Jonathan Hagos, uh, with Donald Insull Associates and IDK. Uh, Benedetti Architects, Hugh Broughton Architects, and a collaboration between Phoenix and Merlin with Haptic Architects and Heritage Architecture complete the shortlist. Um, restricted to RIBA chartered practices, the contest will select a team to remaster plan the Grade 2 star listed 1934 complex uh, and design the first phase of its refurbishment and transformation into a new cultural learning work at Broadcasting and Members Hub. Uh, the project, which is dubbed the House of Architecture at RIBA, will focus on redefining spaces within the building for various functions, uh, achieving full accessibility throughout, supporting the Institute's drive to meet net zero carbon targets, and ensuring the sensitive restoration and conservation of the Art Deco landmark building, um, a building itself which is just located a short distance from that former Topshop store on Oxford Circus. Um, Key aims include creating a welcoming, opening and dynamic face for the institution to replace the current, quote, not sufficiently welcoming ground floor entrance uh, to 66 Portland Place. Uh, when speaking about the project, RIBA President Simon Alford said, quote, the building is both impressive and an important asset, but it requires essential modernization to ensure it's fully accessible, fit for the future and an example of sustainable retrofit. The shortlisted teams will now each receive £5,000 uh, to present at interview ahead of the announcement of an overall winner in April. So, Catherine, what's this all about? What do you make of this competition being run by the RIBA? Um, what do you think of 66 Portland Place as a piece of architecture? And are you pleased to see see a 20th century building like this being given uh, 
a big new lease of life. I love the building. Um, I use it quite a lot and I've missed being able to go there and use the library, which is a fantastic free resource. Um, I mean, it's it's amazing. It's grade two star listed. It's um, got an incredible wealth of artworks, um, sculpture on the outside, glass, murals. It's just a, a really rich ensemble. And I mean, it's great to see money going into it and, and um, it'd be great to see the, the retrofit. But it's, it's not exactly um, a building at risk of falling down or, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not got water pouring through the roof yet, is it? So it's not, it's not been top of my list of buildings that I feel are desperately in need of in investment. I mean, just looking at this shortlist, it's quite a big shortlist and it's got some really talented names on it, a good mix of new and slightly more established firms. What, what do you make of this uh, collection of shortlisted teams? And as somebody who's a, an active commentator and campaigner on conservation, is there anything you or the society think that those teams should be paying close attention to as they move forward into this next design phase of the competition? Uh, it's a really interesting list, a really, a really diverse list and... Um, you know, people who've got a lot of, of very varied experience in all sorts of different things that could be relevant to this project, which is, you know, it's such a, a wide brief as well. You know. But um, I mean, I think absolutely the first thing that they need to do is they, to, to draw a conservation management plan up. So to actually kind of study the building and work out what it is that's special about it and, and to work out where, uh, where there's room for change and where there are areas that are just incredibly um, specifically designed and intact from the original um, and where there'll be less scope for change. You know, and then actually, although it was first built in the 30s, it's been extended twice in the 50s. It had an, um, a roof extension and they moved in next door. So those bits are, are kind of less significant than the original grey one and bit. And I think all these architects need to really understand exactly what it is they're dealing with before they start thinking about how they want to change it. I mean, one of the things I think is really interesting about the shortlist is that you've got people on it like David Conn and Ros Barr, who, um, and, and I'm sure all the others as well, who are kind of experts at working with historic context, but then also like, jazzing up a bit, making it a bit more exciting, but in a way which isn't, um, doesn't necessarily preclude future changes. Um, I mean, what do you think to that? Do you think, they, do you think they're gonna have, they should be sticking to something that's really pure, or do you think that there's... Yeah, it, it does have enough space and enough flexibility to really to be a bit more colourful or to just be a bit more um, edgy or interesting or or just real and normal rather than like feeling like you're wandering around a Poirot uh, scene or something. Yeah, I mean, at the moment, the RIBA own next door as well, don't they? And and I understand they're thinking of selling that off. I think it's it's really difficult if you've got an outstanding um, historic building to uh you know to upgrade it and make it accessible without spoiling what makes it so special and i mean the thing that immediately uh project immediately kind of leapt to mind for me was the you know the charles rennie mackintosh house in northampton which john mccaslin um did work on probably at least 10 years ago now and that was again about providing accessibility and more education um, facilities and they deliberately bought next door so that it could take the pressure off the historic building and, um, you know, be imaginative and, and have a, a much more interventionist approach in the in the bit next door. And therefore um, allow you to to preserve what was special about the, the historic building itself. So I'm kind of um, concerned to hear that they maybe are not going to have the opportunity to do that in Portland Place. And maybe that's something that should be reconsidered. 
And I, I just realized well, one thing that possibly, re- well, very relevant, um, Neil Chassaw, head of the LSA, an architectural historian specializing on that very building, is on the selection panel. So is that, is that a good sign? I, I didn't know that. Yeah, Neil's actually one of our trustees as well. He's great. Um, and um, I mean, and he's been making the point that, that you know, that, that the building is also, it's a kind of a building that, that really emphasizes the colonial relationships that the RIB and, and its members had in the 1930s. You know, if you were an architect, you were an architect of empire. And that the building is um, expresses that both in the choice of the artists who were brought in to work on it and in the materials and in um, the subject matter of some of the sculpture and, um, and murals. And some of that stuff is things that we're not, you know, we're not comfortable with now. And I think the project will need to address how um, how that story is you know presented nfts otherwise known as non-fungible tokens have catapulted into the public consciousness over the past year attracting big name artists performers and designers uh, sometimes selling for colossal amounts of money uh, one nft created by the digital artist beeple for example sold for a record 69 million dollars last year uh, but so far the world of architecture and urban design has yet to make significant inroads into the field um, to give a brief explanation nfts are non-interchangeable units of data uh, stored on a blockchain a kind of digital ledger on the internet uh, and these nfts they can be sold or traded uh, an nft could be any kind of digital artifact it could be a tweet, an audio recording, a BIM model. Um, uh, and this artifact, uh, through encryption on the blockchain ledger, uh, can then be brought and sold uh, by anyone online. Um, now, the architectural canon itself, uh, something which Open City focused on in its recent Accelerate debates, uh, is being launched into the melee under a new project called the Dead Architect Society, spearheaded by Alex Long. Um, here he is explaining the project. Hello, my name is Alexander Long and I'm the creator of the Dead Architect Society, which is an NFT project paying homage to 1,000 noteworthy architects from history. I've been a listener to the London podcast since it launched and I really admire how the podcast makes architecture in the built environment more accessible. One of the motivations for starting the Dead Architect Society was to do something similar, to raise awareness of architecture and its importance through this new medium of NFTs. We're looking to build an online community of like-minded people who care about architecture and the built environment. People who buy a Dead Architect Society NFT get a permanent membership to the community and they get a say in which architects are in their collection. The first 100 architects have been selected and the NFTs will go on sale on the 22nd of March. We've tried to pick as diverse a group of architects as possible, going as far back as ancient Egyptian times right up until the year 2000. One of the things that I've noticed when researching the list is that it is especially difficult to find architects who are women or from minority backgrounds. I want to make sure we don't miss anyone out, and so I'd love to get nominations of architects you admire to include in the collection. To find out more about how to get involved, you can visit deadarchitects.xyz or follow us on Twitter at dead underscore architects. Thanks for listening. 
So some of the architects to feature in the first drop uh, include the likes of Elizabeth Scott, uh, the talent behind the Royal Shakespeare Theatre in Stratford, uh, Ludwig Myers van der Rohe, uh, who designed the Barcelona Pavilion, uh, Mima Sinan, uh, she created this similarly mosque in Turkey, and Lina Do Bobardi, um, who designed the Sao Paulo Museum of Art. Um, if you were to pick an architect who died before the 21st century, um, who would you pick for inclusion in this epic list and why? I mean, there's who do I think most deserves to be in the list and who would I pay for? Who, who would I buy if I was being a canny investor? It seems to me that this um, NFT stuff is all about investment. And, um, and so I guess I would sign up for Corbusier. He's got to be best bet for increasing in value. Maybe Frank Lloyd Wright. Um, I mean, in terms of, you know, pick your favourite architect, I thought maybe I'd go for Dennis Lasden, but he didn't die until 2001, so he's, um, he's not going to be there. And the, the other thing I, I saw was that um, you have to be an architect who's been solely responsible for a building, so you can't be part of a practice. So, you know, Chamberlain, Powell and Bonn, none of them are presumably going to be included. And that made me feel it's a, it is a kind of, you know, big heroic um, individual person responsible for a building approach, which is so, I mean, you know, we, we I thought we were, we're trying to get away from that in our understanding of a canon as, as seeing um, architecture as being the um, products of, of often very diverse groups of, of not just architects, but of, of, of collaborations with artists and clients as well. I mean, just thinking, what's your take on this world of uh, NFTs and this commodification of digital culture, which had obviously always otherwise been very ephemeral? Um, is this all a sort of fad uh, which could soon uh, fizzle out? Or do you think there's something significant here about architecture and like sort of London's architectural culture making this kind of jump into this um, NFT world? I, I honestly don't know. But I think it's really, I think it's a good thing for architecture to... Um, you know, to be discussed in this context, it, it gets it gets a whole new audience of people talking about architecture, and you know, it gets people talking about how you how you rank architects, how you decide who's important, what the canon should be. Um, I mean, I noticed that um, Alex says he had trouble um, finding um, enough women architects. And I mean, I was kind of shocked recently. We've, we've been doing at 20th Century, we've been doing a series of books, like we've done 100 buildings, 100 churches, 100 landscapes. And we had a proposal to do 100 women architects. And we found considerably more than 100 to put on our shortlist, but we couldn't get the publisher to run with it because they just didn't think there'd be a market for it. And I thought that was a pretty sad reflection. I thought we'd kind of got to the point where that would be seen as um, you know, something that would, that would definitely sell. Catherine, it's been an amazing uh, pleasure to feature you on the show. Uh, where can our listeners uh, keep up to speed on your projects and writings? The 20th Century Society website, www.c20society.org.uk. And you can sign up there for our um, e-newsletter. Um, better still, you can join the 20th Century Society and help us to preserve 20th century buildings across the UK. Yes, so tell us, um, Merlin, what you've got planned at Open City. Oh, well, cheers for asking. So um, it's actually it's pretty much the same as last week. So the programme for Open House London Festival is open uh, for proposals. Um, that means if you've got a building, a housing estate, a garden, an event or a flat that you'd like to include in the festival, um, go to our website. You can check out all the application details there. Meanwhile, we have just launched bookings for the first Baylight Fellowship Residential Masterclass. It's going to be visiting world-class housing, including Accordia, Marmalade Lane, 
between the Span Estates in Cambridge and the Ride in Hatfield. Uh, catering and overnight accommodation at 6A's Cowan Court in Cambridge is all included in the ticket price. Um, finally, tickets are selling like hotcakes for Open City's 2022 keynote lecture uh, that will be given by the acclaimed Scottish architect Kate McIntosh. Um, Edinburgh Royal McIntosh is best known for her 1960s social housing projects in London and her tireless work as a housing campaigner. Uh, tickets for this can be found on our website. Uh, thanks again, Catherine, for featuring on the show. It's absolutely fantastic. I hope you can join us again soon in the future. Great pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.